standing with me, if you would, let's read from Romans chapter 10, verse 21. A very small but very powerful verse. It says, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. Let's pray. God, thank you for the joy again that is ours to stand in honor of your word. And I pray that as we stand, you would bless this time as we open your word Open our hearts, open our minds, give us understanding, and may your spirit take what we hear and apply it to our lives, and may the response that we give glorify you, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. I don't know how many of you studied today the book of Jonah. Can I see hands? How many today studied the book of Jonah? I'm going to mention Jonah very quickly as we begin our introduction, God's endless pursuit of a rebellious people. God is in an endless pursuit of rebellious people. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's talking about you. He's not talking about me. You can deny it all day long, but I know you're a rebellious people. I have been your pastor for over nine years. But I am a rebellious person as well. We come into this world pretty much with a depraved nature, and we are all born rebellious sinners. But God is in an endless pursuit. He never tires. He never wearies. He never gets discouraged in pursuing us. Isaiah 40, 28 says, Have you not known and have you not heard? The Lord God is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. Aren't you glad that in God's pursuit of you, he did not grow weary? Because some of you fought him. Isn't that right, Roy? Yeah? Yeah, you did. And I I trust that you have get to know the new Roy because I've been with him in the DU training up the DU class up there in the men's class. He's a different guy than he was a couple of weeks ago. It's amazing how different a person becomes when they stop being religious and self-righteous and becomes a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. It makes all the difference. But God today is in endless pursuit of not only sinners, but also the self-righteous. Let me say that again. He is on an endless pursuit of not only sinners, but the self-righteous. We would all agree that God is in an endless pursuit for the sinner. We would all amen that, and we applaud that, and we say amen to that. But how about the self-righteous? Because I'm convinced there will be as many self-righteous people not make it into heaven and forfeit their salvation as those who are sinners because there actually is no difference between a sinner and a self-righteous individual. They're both sinners in need of saving grace. One knows it and one denies it. But God is in an endless pursuit. Jonah, as you studied this morning, was a self-righteous dude who was called by God to go to Nineveh to take the gospel of redemption to the Ninevites, and he refused to go, and in his self-righteousness, took a boat, went south, right? Wound up in the belly of a large fish, and God did not keep him there. All of that God was orchestrating to redeem Jonah, his messenger, unto himself. God was relentlessly, endlessly pursuing Jonah, who was rebellious and defiant against God, who is a symbol of Israel and their defiance. Toward God. And aren't the Ninevites glad that he did finally come to his senses? He was broken of his pride. He turned to God and agreed to go. And the Ninevites, who were sinners in need of saving grace, received such saving grace because of the message that God had given to Jonah. 
In Luke chapter 15, we see Jesus also talking in similar parables in regard to righteousness and self-righteousness and sin. There were some Pharisees that were a little bit upset with Jesus because he was uh, eating with sinners and he was welcoming and receiving sinners into his presence. You know, they would never do that because they, would, they were afraid that a little bit of that filth of their sin would sort of rub off on them. So they didn't welcome sinners. They didn't eat at the table with sinners. More than likely, you and I would never be invited to lunch with them because we would be considered sinners. And so they came to Jesus and said, Jesus, we're a little bit concerned about this. You're receiving sinners and eating with them. And he gives them three very critical parables in Luke 15. The first one is about a father who has, no, it's about a shepherd who has some sheep. Let me back up. A shepherd who has a hundred sheep. And one of them gets lost. And he says to them, what would that shepherd do? Leave the 99 out in the open field and then go after the one that was lost? Absolutely. The shepherd would endlessly, tirelessly pursue that lost sheep until he finds it. And when he finds it, he will put it on his back and carry it back into the fold for which it belongs. The endless pursuit of God. God through Jesus giving some insight in his desire to redeem a lost Israel. Again, another parable where Jesus reveals his heart again about Israel and the lostness of Israel. He talks about this lady who has ten coins, and one somehow gets lost, and she doesn't know where it is. Now, she has nine, but she's lost one of her silver coins, and so she sweeps the entire house and endlessly pursues that lost coin until she finds it. And then once she finds it, she returns it back to the other nine. Once again, another insight into the endless pursuit of God for sinners and self-righteous people. And then the final parable in Luke 15 is the one we sort of alluded to last week about the father with two sons. One of those sons, as you know, came and asked his dad for his inheritance, and his dad gave it to him, unknowingly what his son would do with it. And several days later, he packs his bags, takes his inheritance, and squanders it on sinful living. And it wasn't until he ran out of money, and he was slopping, hog, slopping feed to the hogs, that he recognized and realized, even my father's servants eat better than this in my father's home, and I need to repent and go back to my father's house. And he gets up off his knees and turns to his father and says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and sinned against you. Please forgive me. I am not worthy to be your son. And what does a father do? He wraps his loving arms around his son, puts the family ring on his finger, and welcomes him home. Now, what we, if we're not careful, when we read that story, we miss the endless pursuit of the father who every day, multiple times a day, is looking toward that horizon where he saw his son walk off hoping that his son would return every single day. I can imagine multiple times a day until one day he saw his son at a distance. And what does the Bible say? He ran to him and embraced him and welcomed him. He embraced his repentant son, the endless pursuit of a loving, loving father pursuing the return of his son, hoping that he would come back and come to his senses and come home. But then we have the end of that parable, which we're going to come to at the end. And I want to just sort of make note. There's another brother, the older brother, who doesn't do what the younger brother does. And he is symbolic of the self-righteous brother who doesn't want to come to the party because he's refusing to admit that in spite of, of, his, of his 
impeccable lifestyle, faithful and obedient, a workaholic to his father. He too is a sinner in needing and in need of coming to the table of grace. So we have multiple opportunities and multiple times in the Old and the New Testament, beautiful examples about the endless pursuit of God for sinners and self-righteous people. Where were you when God found you in that endless pursuit of you? In spite of your rebellion and your sin and even in your self-righteousness, he continued to pursue, he continued to stand and knock at the door of your heart saying, come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what we see in Romans chapter 10, that small verse, verse 21, what the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is concluding Romans chapter 10. He is addressing now Israel, who is a self-righteous people who are failing to recognize their need for a Savior. They have rejected Jesus. They have tried Jesus, they have crucified Jesus, they have buried his lifeless body in a tomb and sealed it up only to be surprised that three days later he rose from the dead. And now they've been hearing the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has been raised from the dead and they can be saved from their sins as looking to Jesus as the ultimate and final sacrifice for their sin if they will yet turn from their sin and turn to Jesus and put their faith in him by grace through faith they can be saved and yet they're still not recognizing him they're refusing to acknowledge that Jesus was their Messiah that his miracles did manifest his glory the fact that he was the son of God and that his message is the gospel that has the power unto salvation to those who will hear it receive it and believe in faith and so he's He's sort of pleading with them now. And in that plea, he gives four characteristics of the endless pursuit of God. Number one, God is compassionate. Aren't you glad that God is compassionate? Aren't you, God, aren't you glad that God cares? Aren't you glad that God is concerned about our lostness? And out of his compassion, he has this endless pursuit of you and I until we finally come to faith in him. Notice verse 21, but of Israel, he says, but of Israel, he, God says, notice the word, but we have described last week. There are several transitions in the text as he concludes chapter 10 with that word, however, And that word, but, or however, is a continuation of what he has just said. What has he just said? Let's recap for just a moment what we studied last week. If you remember, there was a a group of people we call the Gentiles. These were not the Israelites. These were not God's chosen people. They had no desire for God. They had no advantage in knowing about God because they didn't have the law. They didn't have the prophets. They had not been given this sacrificial system through the writings of Moses. They didn't have any hope of ever being saved. They were not pursuing God, and God pursued them endlessly, tirelessly with the message of the gospel of Jesus. And these unworthy, unbelieving sinners were not only hearing the gospel, but receiving the gospel and placing their faith and trust in Jesus. And God did that, as we saw last week, why? To make Israel jealous, to make them envious 
of a people that were not searching for God. God searched out for them. They came to faith through the gospel in Jesus, and they were now part of the fellowship and the family of God. So he now changes from speaking to the Gentiles and about the Gentiles. Now he turns to his attention to Israel. However, in spite of these people who did not pursue God, have received Jesus through receiving the gospel of Jesus. He is now speaking to them, to Israel. And he says, who is the he? Well, in this attempt for God to give this appeal to these unbelieving countrymen of the Apostle Paul who are supposed to have been the first ones. I mean, they had all the advantage. They had the law. They had the prophets. They had the sacrificial system. They knew that, 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 that salvation was by grace through faith in the sacrificial system. They had heard that Jesus came now as the substitute for that sacrificial system. If they would turn to him because he was offered on the altar called Calvary where he died for their sins, if they would do that, they would be saved. And he, God, is now speaking. This is not the Apostle Paul speaking, but this is God speaking through the Apostle Paul. For when we carry the message of the gospel of Jesus, it is not we who speak, but it is God who speaks through us. And God is speaking through the penmanship of the Apostle Paul under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he is speaking into their need for a Savior. And he says to them, now, last week, we saw how in spite of all the attempts that God did to speak to Israel, they did not want to listen. They weren't willing to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wait a minute. God is still speaking to a people who don't want to hear? Absolutely. Why would he do that? Because he still cares. He still has compassion. And he wants them to hear and to receive and to believe in Jesus. In Luke, we learn where Jesus was on the cross. And while he was being suspended in the air, dying for the sins of those who would place their faith and trust in him, what were his final words? He says to them, as he says to the Lord, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What else is that other than a compassionate heart? A Savior who is being crucified on a cross, dying for their sin, the most horrific death that anybody could ever die. And yet, in his last breath, with his last words, he cries out to God in heaven, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus was sent out of God's compassionate heart. Jesus died on a cross because of his compassionate heart. And Jesus is still reaching out to these degenerate, self-righteous, egotistical, agnostic people who refuse his ministry, his messiahship, and his message. And yet he still pursues them with the message. People, there are no lost causes until they breathe their final breath. And we must continue. And I know some of you have been sharing with me in the last few weeks, there are some people that I'm trying to break through to with the gospel, and they're hard, and they're deaf, and they're blind, but continue to speak the words of truth because in God's time, with the Spirit of God, using the words of the Word of God, I'm convinced that in time, they will hear and they will understand. And by grace, they will be saved. 
We must, like him, have compassion for those that are the hardest of hearts, the most rebellious of people, because we, like God, know there are no lost causes when it comes to his grace. You were a lost cause once, and yet he loved you. The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. And so God is a compassionate God. Number two, not only is he a compassionate God, but he's a constant God. The word constant means unwavering. It means unchanging. Notice the text. It says, as the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us one or another characteristic of the character of God. God is constant. He is unwavering. He is unchanging. He says, but of Israel, he, God, says, all day long. All day long. Incredible statement. All day long. That word all means exactly what we think it is. All, whole, entire, complete. Every single second, every moment of an entire day. The whole earth has been rotated now for 24 hours. It's describing this endless pursuit of God, holding out his hand tirelessly, holding it out, inviting them to place their faith and trust in him. He's, he's holding it out. All day long, I have held out my hand. I have constantly, continually held out my hand. In spite of your rejecting your rebellion and your sin and your self-righteousness, I am still calling unto you to turn from your sin, from your self-righteousness. You may not see it, but you are self-righteous. You are in need of a Savior, and I am the solution to your sin, you self-righteous sinner. I'm constant. You may turn your back on me, but I'm not going to turn my back on you. He's holding out his hand. I don't know about you, but I was in here a while ago, and I was in that song, and I was raising my hand. I don't like to come up here and do that because kind of, anyway. But in the song, as I was raising my hand, in just that song, my hand got tired. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, you raise it for a while, and after a while, it gets tired, right? And, and, and then it becomes a sacrifice of praise because you want to put it down. And I fight putting it down because that's part of the offering. That's part of the giving God glory. And I know some of you are too Baptist to do that, and that's okay. God will liberate you at some point. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's talking about you. He's not talking about me. Okay? And if you feel like the Spirit's telling you to raise your hand, you do that in here. But anyway, and, and, and I'm getting, you know, you get tired just holding your hand up. And how hard it, would it be for us to just have our hand like this and hold it out for a few minutes, maybe for an hour? Some of you, well, I'm pretty strong. I could probably do it for a couple hours. How about for 24 hours? Hold out your hand and not let it drop. Why would God do that? Because these people are dying and going to hell, and they need a hand. And God is constantly holding out his hand for those who will hear and understand and see their losses and their need for a Savior, and they will repent of their sin and turn to Christ and trust him and believe in him and put their faith in him by grace. They receive the hand that is a nail-scarred hand for their redemption. And God never, ever says, eh. but he's always extending that hand. Why? Because he is constant. 
He is constant. God, thirdly, is not only constant, but he is capable. He is compassionate, he is constant, but he is capable. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands. I have. I have a different response and a different reaction to your rebellion and your rejection of me. I am holding out my hand. Why is he holding out his hand? Because his arm is the strong arm that is strong enough to pull them out of the muck and the mire of sin and into the grace of God found through faith in Jesus and a righteousness that is not self-righteousness, but it is Christ's righteousness by which and which alone they are to be saved. It speaks here of deliverance. This nail-scarred hand of Jesus is being extended for people who are so self-righteous that they believe they can save themselves by their own righteousness. And Jesus said, you can't do it. And I'm convinced there are many today in the church just like then who are counting on their own works to get them into heaven rather than the ultimate work of the nail-scarred hand of Jesus who alone has the power to deliver us from sin. It's not by grace, or is it by grace? Or is it by works? It's by grace through faith, in that it is not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God. And God has the capable power, the delivering power, to redeem those who will reach up and grab his hand of salvation and pull them up out of the muck and the mire of sin and the damnation that that sin brings. He can deliver them. And because he can deliver them, he knows that he's capable. Hey, people, you're not capable. You can't do it. I can. Look up here. Take my hand. And I have the power to redeem, and to save. It not only talks about deliverance, but it talks about direction. And what is the direction that he's talking about here? The direction is, as he's extending that hand of salvation, he's doing what? He's pulling them unto himself for fellowship, for intimacy, to become not only children of the Father through faith in Jesus, but walk into a union with the Spirit of Christ in an intimate love relationship with the Father through faith in the Son. They think that they're walking in communion with God down there. They are in their zeal. Remember we talked about this? In their zeal and all their effort to live righteously and to work, 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 and to be, 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 and to earn and to deserve and to do all those things. He says, hey, I ain't going to make it, but, but if you will come... You think you're walking with God. We've talked about this, haven't we, He prayed, and he worked, and he thought, but you were lost. These people are in the same boat. They're lost. They have no power. They have no deliverance. They have no victory. They have no, uh, no ability to overcome sin. They, have, they, they don't have the Spirit of God, and, and they're trying, and they're striving in all of their zeal and all of their effort, and they think they're walking with God in fellowship with God, but the whole time, they're not walking with God at all. And yet he's saying, not only can I deliver you, but I can bring you into an intimate love relationship with God the Father through faith in Jesus, my Son, if you will yet turn from your self-righteousness and receive my son as your Savior and your Lord. Paul in Timothy describes this beautiful passage where he is talking about he is an example of the power of God. He is. And we read in, in Romans chapter 11, if you want to read sometime this week, 
We think that God is through with Israel, but he's not because there are some Israelites who are going to become saved and some are not. And Paul is a prime example of the capability, of the compassion, of the patience, of the grace of God because he talks about that fact in 1 Timothy and then later in the book of Acts as he's sharing his testimony that he was a persecutor of Christians. He was there when, when, when uh, Stephen was stoned. He, he, he then got the okay, the, the, the approval of the religious elite in that day to go persecute Christians. And on the road to Damascus, God, in his endless pursuit of the Apostle Paul, spoke into his journey, thinking he was doing a righteous thing for God, and redeemed this man who was persecuting Christians helping him see that Jesus was who he claimed that he was. And Paul says in Timothy, I am an example of the power of the patience and of the grace of God. There are no lost causes with God. No one beyond his outstretched arm. And once, no matter how deep, no matter how far they may have run, he can bring them up because why? He is capable. He is omnipotent he is all powerful because those nail scarred hands give us the victory over sin then lastly God is charitable he's charitable meaning that God is long-suffering he is long-suffering but of Israel he says all day long I have held out my hands to a what a disobedient and a contrary people Israel is being blinded by their own self-righteousness. They don't see themselves as sinners. They don't see themselves in need of a Savior. And yet God continues to be merciful, He continues to be gracious, and He continues to be kind by speaking the gospel truth to them, hoping that someday they will become obedient to the call of God to salvation. Remember we talked about this last week? They were being disobedient because the gospel has a demand to it. And once it is heard and once it is understood, if it is not responded in a favorable way, you are then being disobedient to the call of God unto salvation. And Israel had heard the message from the prophets. They understood the sacrificial system through Moses. They heard the words of Jesus declaring himself to be the Messiah. They heard his message that I am the Lamb of God who, is, who alone is worthy to die for your sin against God. And they knew of his resurrection. They'd heard from the mouths of the apostles and the disciples who were testifying of the glorious gospel that has the power by itself alone through the Spirit of God to bring salvation as we repent and receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord. They were being disobedient. They were not turning from their self-righteousness and turning to Christ's righteousness. But not only were they disobedient, they were contrary that word is an interesting word. It means antagonistic. They were not only people who rejected it, but they, they were antagonistic. They disputed it. They argued against it. They were working against the gospel of Jesus. And you might ask yourself, well, how does that happen? Well, I want to go back to that final aspect of the parable that I alluded to earlier on in our beginning statement. And I want us to go back to Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bible turned there, I want, to, I want you to look and see what Jesus is speaking. Because it's interesting in Luke chapter 15, this, this whole discourse begins when the Pharisees approach Jesus. And they say to Jesus, 
How can you eat with sinners and welcome them into your presence? How can you do that? And he gives these parables. The first was about the lost sheep, and the second was about the lost silver coin. And then he talks about the two sons of the father, and one was the, old, the younger son who went and lived in rebellion. And then there's the older son that I want us to take a look at. When the younger son comes home and the father who's been looking for him endlessly pursuing and hoping and praying that his son would come to his senses and come back to the family and to the faith. He killed a precious prime animal. Had a great, great barbecue. Invited all their friends and relatives. And were celebrating the return of this lost son who now is home. And the commotion was of such that the older brother who was out in the field, still working away, you know, obedient, doing the thing, not with much joy, I may add, but he was doing the work, earning what he had produced, heard the commotion of what was going on and went toward the house and asked a servant, what's up? The servant said, well, your brother that was lost, you know that guy, that prodigal dude who took half of the inheritance and went and squandered on loose living and vile women? Remember that? Yeah, well, he's home. He's broke, but he's home. He's repentant. Your dad has embraced him and put the family ring on his finger and has killed the, the prime animal of the, of the property and invited all there. They're having a, they're having a celebration, man. It's, they're, they're feasting at the table of grace. Won't you come? Does he come? No. He refuses to come. That low-life sinning brother of mine, scumbucket, wasted half of his in, my dad's inheritance on sin and vile living. Ain't no way I'm coming back in there. I'm not going to feast at the table of grace. It ain't happening. And the story picks up here in verse 25. It says, but he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Did you notice that? His father pursued him. The self-righteous brother who was too good to eat with his sinning brother who wouldn't come in, the father leaves the celebration. He leaves the party and goes to his self-righteous son. And he entreats him. He invites him, he pleads with him to come in. But notice the son answers his father. Look, dad, these many years I have, notice the word, served you. I'm working. I've never disobeyed until now. Why is he disobeying now? Because the father's inviting him to come into the feast and the celebration and feast of the banquet of grace. And he's saying, I ain't coming. That's an act of disobedience. What a self-righteous hypocrite. He says, I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Sounds like a little jealousy to me. But when this son of yours came, you know, that wicked, sinning, heathen brother of mine, your son, that younger infidel, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. But the father says to him, the father says to him, listen 
through the invitation of grace. Son. This word really means child. My child. This is a tender moment. I can imagine the father is standing there with tears running down his cheek. Being reminded of this elderly son when he was a boy in Sunday school. Learning about grace, mercy, forgiveness, and love. Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad. He's sharing his joy that his lost son is now home. For this, your brother, notice, was dead. He was dead. But now he is alive. Okay? The sinner is the Gentile who is living in sin, who's now received and heard the message of the gospel and trusted in Jesus. He was lost, but now he is found. What's the father doing? He's summoning the self-righteous son to feast at the table of grace. They're on the front porch while the party's going on inside. And the story ends there. Isn't that frustrating to you? There's no ending to this. Why is that? Because the jury's still out on Israel. They're standing on the porch and refusing to go into the table of grace and feast in the mercy and the love and the compassion and the forgiveness that is offered through saving faith in Jesus alone. And he stands on the porch and the dad walks in. He hears the screen door close and the door close and the joy and the celebration on the inside when all along he stands waiting, considering, debating, thinking, in his self-righteousness, I wonder, should I go in? I think that's what God is inviting us to do today as we stand on the front porch. There is a, a feast, a celebration at the banquet table of grace in which the loving God through the saving Christ is inviting us to die to our self-righteousness, to recognize our sinfulness, and to turn to Jesus for saving grace. The reason there's not an end to the story is because the decision is up to us. God has done everything that he needs to do. God has done everything that he needs to do. He has loved us because he's a compassionate God. He's been constant in that he sent his son Jesus in spite of our rejection and rebellion. And he's extending to us the invitation by a hand. Come on. Take my hand. A nail-scarred hand. From the cross of Christ for our salvation our redemption, and into fellowship with him. What will you do? There's a passage that Jesus talks about sheep, similar to Luke 15, where he says in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, 
and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Did you hear that, though? My sheep hear my voice. It's almost as if he is saying, Hey, Charles. Hey, John. Hey, Sue. Hey, Sally. Hey, Simon. Can you hear your name? He's calling. He's revealed the nail-scarred hand of Jesus as the only solution to your sin against God if you will repent and turn from your self-righteousness and turn from your sin and receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord. He can pull you out of the muck and mire of the, of the lostness and the, the, the degeneration and the shame of this life that you're living without Him and plant you on the solid rock who is Jesus Christ. Will you stand on the porch? Or will you answer the call? Let's pray.